Hey guys, welcome to Precision Nutrition's Eat, Move, and Live Better podcast. I'm Dr. John Berardi, co-founder of Precision Nutrition, and if you're not familiar with us, over the last 15 years, we've become the world's largest online nutrition, fitness, and health coaching company. Through that time, as you can imagine, we've watched fad diets and fitness crazes come and go. But when the fads have failed and the crazes died out and people just want something that works, they turn to Precision Nutrition for things like expert coaching, guided mentorship, and online support. In this podcast, which is a mix of recorded articles, interviews, and roundtable discussions, myself and my Precision Nutrition colleagues will help make the whole nutrition, fitness, and health process work for you. Ideally, you'll discover that eating, moving, and living well can be easy and enjoyable for now and into the future. So let's get started. Hey there, this is Coach Lee San reading today's article. Are GMOs bad for your health? If you're asking this question, you're probably missing the point. By Helen Colias. GMOs are such a hot topic. With so many people debating pros and cons, it's hard to know what to think. So let's answer the question. Are GMOs bad for your health? Then let's look at a few other important questions. Here's what Helen has to say. Vitamin A deficiency leaves up to half a million kids blind each year. If I were to tell you that this is the most powerful statistic in the debate over GMOs, what would you think? Would you wonder how vitamin A could possibly relate to those little non-GMO project verified labels you see on cereal boxes at Whole Foods? If so, here's the story. Ingo Patricus is a humanitarian and a plant scientist in Switzerland who co-invented genetically modified rice. Yep, he makes GMOs, otherwise known as genetically modified organisms. Is he a villain then? or at least a shill for some multinational corporation? Actually, his golden rice was engineered to fortify itself with vitamin A. By inserting a mere three genes into the plant's DNA, out of around 50,000 total genes, Patricus was able to create a rice that carries the vitamin A in its grain instead of just in its inedible leaves. Up to 500,000 children lose their sight each year due to a vitamin A deficiency, with half of them dying within 12 months of going blind. Golden rice would prevent this. Unfortunately, even though Patricus finished his project about 15 years ago and made the seeds available for free to subsistence farmers around the world, malnourished children still can't get golden rice because passionate opposition has blocked its development. So here we have a cheap, nutritious crop, seven years of extensive scientific research, an invention that could completely eliminate an unnecessary epidemic. And that simple invention can't reach the people that need it. But aren't GMOs evil? I know, I know. GMO science can sometimes sound like comic book stuff. Crazy laboratories and mad geniuses megalomaniac supervillains messing around with people's foods for their own entertainment and or financial gain. Fish mated with cantaloupe? Rice with eyeballs. Wheat that makes you grow a tail. Frankenfoods. Island of Dr. Moreau? You get the idea. The whole issue has become synonymous with unchecked power, unethical tinkering, Monsanto, pesticides, contamination, and greed. I get it. Nobody loves giant evil conspiracies, 
except for supervillains. But this is real life. There are no superheroes and supervillains. The truth, as usual, is much more complex and less diabolical. When it comes to GMOs, scientists, who are just highly educated regular folks, by the way, and rarely malevolent geniuses, are mostly working towards innovations in genetics that fight disease, fight hunger and malnutrition, improve animal and crop breeding practices, and potentially even save lives. Of course, scientists haven't been all that great at explaining this to the average person. That's what happens when you're sequestered all day at a fluorescent-lit lab bench trying to splice DNA from fungi, or whatever, along with writing grant proposals. So naturally, the average non-scientist imagines scary stuff. Allow me to speak for my people, the science geeks, and bridge the gap. How GMOs became a four-letter word. If GMOs creep you out, you're not alone. A growing team of anti-GMO activists, including hundreds of reputable advocacy groups, state legislators, and big-name chains like Chipotle, Whole Foods, and Trader Joe's, are questioning the safety of GMOs. They say GM foods could cause major health problems like tumors, liver toxicity, allergic reactions, and death. So it's no surprise that over half of the U.S. public said genetically modified foods are unsafe to eat in a recent survey from Pew Research Center. One quarter of those surveyed said that they check product labels for GMOs every single time they shop. GMOs sound scary and evil. But do people really even know what they are or how they work? What are GMOs? A GMO, or genetically modified organism, is any living thing that's been manipulated to evolve, whether via breeding, engineering, or mutagenics, something that purposely changes an organism's genetic material. Most of the time, people debating GMOs aren't really talking about GMOs. Instead, they're talking about GEOs, genetically engineered organisms things that have somehow been constructed by scientists in a lab. Genetically engineered, or GE plants, animals, and microorganisms have had their DNA surgically altered for some specific purpose, such as increasing the vitamin A content of rice, making plants that need less water, or exploring genetic disorders. For instance, you've probably heard of Roundup Ready Wheat, this is a strain of wheat that resists a weed-killing herbicide known as Roundup. Roundup works by attacking a plant enzyme called EPSP synthase. While Roundup Ready Wheat still has that enzyme, it has a different version of that enzyme, which is invulnerable to that attack. Thus, weeds die, wheat survives. When we talk about altering an organism's DNA, we may be talking about adding something in or taking something away. You can add programming to the existing DNA system to make something new. The product would be a transgenic organism, as in you transferred in a gene, and that method has come to be known as gene knock-in. For example, to create Roundup Ready Wheat, they added a gene for EPSP synthase from a bacteria. Or you can stop the program of an existing portion of DNA. This is called gene knockout. Interestingly, both knock-ins and knockouts happen normally in nature. 
For example, chickens used to have alligator-like teeth. Creepy, huh? Oddly, they still carry talpid too, the gene that is used to make the teeth, but over time the gene got knocked out by regular old evolution. Now it's non-functional, thankfully. When engineered, knockouts are usually done for research. They help us figure out what a gene does. Did a GMO save your life today? As I mentioned earlier, the vast majority of GMOs aren't crops like corn and soy, but rather mice, bacteria, and viruses used to investigate diseases and cures in labs all over the world. As a molecular biologist, I've made hundreds of GM bacteria, hundreds of GM yeasts, and one GM mouse. They've helped me understand how muscle develops and fixes itself, and from there, how we might develop treatments for muscular dystrophy. Genetically modifying microorganisms has led to some of the most revolutionary, life-saving medicines of our time. Some examples. If you've had type 1 diabetes, GM bacteria made your insulin cheap, safe, and accessible. If you've suffered from a genetic growth disorder such as Turner syndrome or short bowel syndrome, GM bacteria made the human growth hormone injections that help regulate your growth. If you're a hemophiliac, I'm sure you must feel safer with your treatment coming from GMO rather than from blood donations. Cells in a lab dish made recombinant human factor 8. If you ever suffer a stroke or heart attack, you might be treated with medication made by tissue plasminogen activator, a cellular GMO. If you have multiple sclerosis, you're perhaps thankful for interferon, also made by a cellular GMO. If you have cystic fibrosis, the enzyme you take, Dornase Alpha, is made by a GMO. Undergoing chemotherapy for cancer? Two GMO drugs that help your bone marrow and blood counts are erythropoietin, EPO, yes, that EPO, and granulocyte colony stimulating factor. G-CSF or GCSF. Lactose intolerant and taken lactase? It comes from GMOs thanks to genes from either a fungus or a yeast. If, heaven forbid, you ever contract Ebola, you'll be beyond grateful for ZMAP, a collection of antibodies grown from GM tobacco infected by GM viruses. In the end, it's kind of a shame that the debate over GM crops has led the general public to brand everything genetically modified as bad. Because GM crops only represent a teeny tiny percent of what's happening in the GM universe, most of which is geared towards helping people and saving lives. But they're unnatural! Sometimes people say that GMOs aren't natural. And if they're referring to genetic engineering, they're correct. Rather than being the result of naturally occurring random gene recombination and mutations, that's how you and I came to be, intentionally making a GMO, again, that's genetic engineering, is deliberate and specific. However, while human intervention may not be natural, it also isn't new. Farmers have been deliberately changing organisms by playing with DNA, whether they realized it or not, for millennia. More than 10,000 years ago, our ancestors domesticated hundreds of plants, inventing agriculture and cultivating crops that are still our main food sources today.
Through artificial selection, selecting specific traits over generations of crop or livestock, plants like corn and wheat have been bred for flavor, texture, size, and tolerance to environmental conditions. Tomatoes, for example, used to be small and tart. If you want a bigger, sweeter tomato, then you only plant seeds from the biggest, sweetest tomatoes. In the 17th century, Dutch farmers bred carrots that were orange instead of yellow or purple, a nod some speculate to the Netherlands' orange flag. Today, consumers typically want all of their produce to be bright with no blemishes and seed-free. Did you know that bananas used to have seeds? The reason this is possible? Most produce has been bred to be blemish and seed-free. Artificial selection has been used with domesticated animals, too. In 1950, an average chicken would produce 125 eggs a year. Decades later, we've bred them to lay 250 eggs annually. Cows, great, 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 plus a whole bunch of more great grandparents, were aurochs. They were bigger, and they were total jerks. After years and years and years of people picking the most agreeable aurochs, we ended up with creatures so docile you can tip them over, if you yourself are a jerk. The point is, genetic modification isn't some scary new science. We've been doing it for a long time, in a very rough, imprecise, chainsaw sort of way. Now we're doing it in the best possible way, in a strategic, precise, scalpel sort of way. And now we have a much better idea of what we're changing and what impact it will have. It's true that with genetic engineering, you can use any gene from anything, you could even make up your own DNA, potentially creating combinations that would never otherwise exist. But this isn't really an argument against GE. Foreign, quote-unquote, DNA inserts itself into other organisms in the wild all the time, likely yielding all manner of outcomes, positive, negative, and unknown. For example, around 8% of human DNA is actually from viruses, which have invaded our bodies throughout history. This viral DNA has helped placental development during pregnancy and for making more enzymes to break down carbs. One major source of concern about GM foods is that genetic engineering might cause the DNA to go haywire, accidentally turning on non-functional genes such as ones that could make the plant toxic, or creating genetic instability that would allow the plant to continue to evolve, in unintended, potentially scary ways, even after the scientists are finished. Some of these concerns have to do with the aforementioned fear of inserting foreign genes into the DNA of the crops. The truth is that GE foods really aren't so different from conventionally bred plants and animals. The bottom line, genetic engineering is a much more exact method that leaves less to chance than conventional breeding. Both methods change genes in an organism. The difference is how much change, and how precise that change can be. Here's a quick comparison. Genetic engineering modifies only a few genes, usually only one in fact, leaving the rest untouched, whereas classical breeding shuffles hundreds of genes at once, changing their position in the DNA. 
genetic engineering allows strict control of each gene's production, where and when the genes are on, where, for example, in the seed but not in the plant, and when, for example, during development but not once the plant is mature. In classical breeding, breeders have no idea where and when these genes will end up and how they'll be expressed. What this means? Genetically modified corn is exactly the same as domesticated corn, with the exception of one or two genes. In comparison, wild corn has many genes that differ, about five clusters of genes, each producing small variations in the plant. These effects include how much starch corn makes and what type, the type of environment and the soil the corn will grow in, how long the cob is and how many kernels are in each row, the size, shape, and color of the kernels, and the resistance to pests. Yes, even conventional corn can and does resist pests. So, in most ways, conventional farming methods have had much more of an impact on our food than genetic engineering. The biggest threats posed by GMOs. There's nothing intrinsically unsafe about genetic technology. As I argue above, it's probably even safer than most of the approaches being used today. However, scientists have to admit there are some GMOs that could harm the world's food supply. First, certain kinds of GM crops could be wiped out by weeds or pests. Humans and weeds are at war with each other. Crops go to the winner. As with many wars, this one has seen a military escalation with more and better weapons. Humans use herbicides, which are chemicals that are toxic to weeds and living things in general. The weeds retaliate by evolving to resist the herbicides. Humans then use more of a different herbicide. And on and on the escalation goes. Problem is, the crops can only take so much herbicide and exposure before they become collateral damage in the war. Solution. Enter genetic engineering and its herbicide-resistant crops. Remember Roundup? Great! War is over, right? It doesn't work that way. The massive use of herbicides wiped out nearly all of the weeds, but the few that survived are now hyper-evolved, breeding herbicide-resistant strains. Let's use more herbicide! The war drags on. Eventually, the weeds become resistant to these herbicides, and there's major loss in crops. Similarly, BT corn is programmed to make its own pesticide to wipe out the caterpillars that might munch on it. Good, right? But what if there are other, just as destructive pets just waiting for those weak and frail caterpillars to get out of the way so they can jump in to eat the leftovers? The second big threat GMOs pose to our food supply is genetic erosion. Genetic erosion happens when an already small gene pool gets even smaller and more uniform. Getting GM food to market is a strictly regulated process that takes up to 12 years. One part of this process is ensuring that GM foods are 100% genetically uniform. Every single seed, every single ear of corn, has to have the exact same DNA. This homogeneity, this genetic erosion, may mean that we lose diversity, which could make our food supply less robust. With the same DNA, Organisms have the same vulnerabilities. A plague, drought, fungus, or other pathogens could wipe out all of our crops at once. Then we starve. 
Don't blame the GMOs. Herbicide escalation and genetic erosion should be taken seriously, to be sure. But in order to consider solutions, it's important to recognize that these problems aren't specific to GMOs. For instance, we're well aware of the unacceptability of high pesticide levels found in many of the fruits and vegetables at the grocery store. Non-GMO crops can be the source of herbicide escalation too. Weeds simply become resistant through natural selection. Genetic erosion isn't a new worry. 100,000 years of breeding practices have led to a certain amount of uniformity already. Though it's prudent to make sure GM crops with advantages over conventional ones don't further narrow the genetic pool. GM practices should be checked and strictly regulated. It's a good thing that we have watchdog groups keeping the balance. Like everyone, scientists make mistakes and do the wrong thing sometimes. But we have to look at the big picture. Focusing on GM foods means missing 99% of the problem. So, are GM foods safe? I know you want to know, and I sympathize. GM ingredients and additives are used in so many of the foods we eat. To begin with, there are 1,500 published studies indicating that GM foods are safe. But I'm not going to rest a case on them. There are some animal studies that might raise red flags, but I won't cite those either. Because here's the reality. While most scientists believe GM foods are probably safe, science will never prove it 100% unequivocally. The answer is much more complicated than yes or no, or pro or anti. We need to get beyond that to stop throwing studies at each other. Nothing can be proved to be absolutely, unequivocally safe. Pick anything and somebody has died from it. So let's explore the grown-up questions in gray areas and think about what trade-offs we're willing to make in a scientifically informed and literate way. For instance, what aspects of GM technology could be really good for the world and why? Which aspects should we be cautious about and why? What do we know to be true or is probably true and what is speculation? What's the evidence? How much is our discomfort with the unfamiliar driving the fears? Are we correctly assessing risk and reward? What's an acceptable level of risk to get to the benefits? As a scientist, I would love people to embrace science, evidence, and the joy of discovery. Scientists grapple with some very difficult and complex questions, and most of them just want to make the world a better place. What to do next? Short of going back to school for a PhD in biology, what can you do right now? First, elevate your thinking game. Almost no scientific question is about good versus evil. Even space-time bends occasionally. Recognize that issues are complex. If you'd like some practice with this, may we recommend our Level 1 and Level 2 nutrition certifications? Number 2. Be a critical consumer learner, and listener. Contrary to what the mainstream media might lead you to believe, the biggest threats posed by GMO crops on the market today are not to your individual health, and they're not even specific to GMOs. Picking a side and assuming the other side is unreasonable makes real communication impossible. 
scientific findings presented as the final word are probably being misinterpreted. Be wary of anyone who is telling you something 100% true about GMOs. Even as sciencey folks ourselves, we're not going to give you the big definitive answer either, because there isn't one. Number three, address specific issues. Don't mix them up. With GMOs and other food safety and regulatory issues, it's important to think critically about our concerns. Are you against pesticides? Great, but that's different from being against GMOs. And to focus on GMOs here is to ask the wrong questions. Want GM foods to be labeled as such? Great, but the importance of food labeling goes way beyond GMOs. Worried about large companies controlling our food? I get that. Be against big food, not GMOs. Both conventional farming and GMOs use herbicides and pesticides, narrow the genetics pool, and increase the risk of catastrophic loss of crops. Conflating these issues means change will never happen. Number four, focus on the big picture and real-life priorities. The fourth largest cause of death in the United States is accidents. Wearing your seatbelt will lower your risk of early death much more than worrying about GMOs. And quit texting and driving. You know who you are. Other leading causes of death are largely due to the toxic combinations of sedentary lifestyles, stress, and poor nutrition. Never mind GM vegetables. People aren't eating vegetables. Period. In other countries, malnutrition is a leading cause of illness and early death, especially in children. So start with the key behaviors that will really make a difference. If you're wondering what those are, check out our nutrition coaching programs for men and women. And number five, keep things sane and sensible. The world in general can feel scary. Things we don't understand can feel even more so. Control what you can control as best as you can. Make PN-friendly choices as consistently as possible, as well as possible. This has been Coach Lee Sand from Precision Nutrition reading the article, Are GMOs Bad for Your Health? If you're asking this question, you're probably missing the point. By Helen Colias. Thank you for listening. Okay, everyone, that's it for this week's edition of Precision Nutrition's Eat, Move, and Live Better podcast. For more information about how to eat, move, and live better yourself, and for some awesome free nutrition and health resources, come visit us on the web at www.precisionnutrition.com. You could also visit us on Facebook or on Twitter at InsidePN. Talk to you next time.